Welcome to Governance House. This is Backgammon, our in-house podcast touching on the latest updates from the Middle East. my colleague Dr. John Holland McCowan. Today we will be discussing the latest updates from across the Middle East. But first, perhaps it is vital to mention that this comes at a time where the Russian invasion of Ukraine enters its second month. And while Vladimir Putin's decision has caused ripples in the international scene that will take a long time to assess, its direct impact is already rippling in the neighborhood. Turkey, for example, have been under intense scrutiny of where they sit in the Ukrainian conflict in ways that put into question its warming relations with Russia and a potential resuscitation of its NATO alliance. John has, in fact, been looking closely into that. Absolutely, Gadi. I think it's fascinating. Turkey has, for years, tried to operate along a strategic autonomy type of framework where it could buy the S-400 anti-aircraft missile system from Russia, while, on the other hand, able to try to convince the U.S. and the European allies of the NATO that they are also on their side as NATO a partner. But this conflict has sort of directly challenged where they sit on this geopolitical spectrum. Uh, Turkey, I think many people would argue they uh, have adopted what's called sort of a pro-Kiev neutrality position, where they wish for the sovereignty of Ukraine to be upheld, and yet they say they're not a necessary belligerent in the conflict, that they're trying to sue for peace. They're the ones who are um, trying to be these diplomatic intermediaries between the Russian uh, and the Ukrainian camp with very mixed success up to this point. Some things I'm really interested in is that the Turkish government, uh, they've been accused by the Russian forces of supplying these TB2 armed UAV drones to the Ukrainian government. Yeah, I mean, we saw uh, the impact of those on, on these columns of Russian tanks, I guess. They seem devastating. And uh, ultimately, though, the, the Turkish foreign ministry, they say, well, actually, these TP2 drones are owned by a private company. This is this is a merchandise sale. This is not the Turkish government directly backing Ukrainian forces. But that's sort of a tentative connection to draw, considering that uh, President Erdogan's son-in-law is one of the founding partners of the company that produces uh, these drones. And the Turkish defense industry has... Uh, close ties with this program. And in fact, this is part of a broader upswing in Turkish defense spending in recent years. So I think the connections are actually much more real than uh, diplomatic talk would have people believe. I mean, I guess hence the Russian pressure at that point. Right, exactly right. But Russia could also make it hard on Turkey, I guess. Totally. Uh, Russia has a lot of points of leverage against Turkey, uh, one of them being that a third of Turkey's national natural gas imports are from Russia, so they're quite energy dependent. Uh, that's notwithstanding the nuclear plant uh, that Russia has put in money into in order to try to, again, boost Turkey's economic potential. But there are other points of leverage, too. Uh, Russia, for instance, uh, is... I think of recent years, a fifth of Turkey's tourism industry. For some countries, that may not be considered very important, but for Turkey, who's been reeling under economic pressure in recent years, they were hoping that this summer would be an an opportunity for this 4% of their GDP of tourism to get a huge boost. And so if the Russian government decides to discourage their citizens from going, let alone Ukrainians, who I think are the fourth largest share of tourists, 
tours to Turkey as of 2021, they also will be impacted and it'll be harder to get to Turkey. So those are some economic points of leverage. There are some security, security ones as well, which we could talk about. Mm-hmm. Well, one of them, of course, and it's very much related to research you've been doing, Gadi, is the, the case of Idlib, the last rebel holdout, one could say, um, with a strong hand that HTS, Haritir al-Sham, exerts over northwestern Syria. Yeah, um, almost exclusively it, open to Turkey. I mean, Turkey is their only in from Idlib. So um, you're right. That, that, I, is, that is quite an interesting point you're making. Well, if Russia wanted to weaponize refugees, which I don't think it's adverse to doing, it could encourage the Assad regime to break the ceasefire and create a new offense in Idlib. And really, the only place these refugees would want to go is into Turkey, the same Turkey that already has about three and a half million Syrian refugees, that is undergoing serious economic pressure um, and seems to be weary of hosting uh, such a large number. And so that is a serious threat to Turkey, that if Russia wished to really put the screws on Ankara, they would uh, potentially initiate or give the green light for a further advance in Idlib, which could risk a huge refugee flow right into Turkey. I mean, that's been sort of the, the underlying tone of the whole conflict in Ukraine, is that it is reminiscent of Syria. It does sound like a deja vu. The Russian intervention in Syria in 2015 completely changed the, the dynamics of the war. The Assad regime took the initiative after that, especially relying on Russian Aventis, uh, a bombing and air force and, and pretty much what we're seeing in Ukraine. Despite the news of it stalling, there's still a lot of damage that Russia can still do. It still has been Absolutely. a superpower. So if, if, if Syria has any lesson here, I hope that we don't see a repeat of that in Ukraine, at least for the population, but also... What happened in Syria is that the U.S. had to go on the ground to counter that. So this is where it gets interesting. Right, exactly right. And I'm seeing videos of places like Mirapool or Kharkiv, and it's hard for me not to think of Aleppo or some of these other cities that were just leveled. Um, And uh, in this case, exclusively by Russian bombardment in Ukraine, and um, Russia played clearly a hugely significant role in staving off opposition advances in Syria. So I think those analogies, unfortunately, are all too pertinent. I mean, there was a lot of work done until the rules of engagement are what they are today in Syria. Right. Tell me more about that. What do you, uh, you think on that issue? I mean, what comes to my mind on that is, is what happened in February 2020. I mean, just as, as COVID was starting, but like I remember when there was a clash between U.S. forces patrolling northeast Syria and Syrian military forces in a town called Khaybet Amru. And this is a small village in the middle of nowhere. But what happened is that at the time, the, the checkpoint decided that do not want to let the U.S. forces through. And it almost escalated into a, a, another world war because the Russian military then had to interfere. There was a bombing from the air. And some you had a checkpoint Charlie in the middle of nowhere, Syria. And at the time, I remember, exactly, and at the time, I remember that this is such an unlikely place to have that. But with what's going on in Ukraine today, this is where you start to wonder whether the rules of engagement could, in fact, change in a, in a way that we thought we would never see again. I mean, speaking of we thought we'd never see again, Assad in the UAE. I mean, did you see that? Right. To have Assad on a state visit to the United Arab Emirates, visiting Dubai, visiting Abu Dhabi, is, is clearly an obvious challenge to the U.S. efforts to A, isolate the Russian camp and its allies, but also to hinder its 
you know, the efforts of the U.S. administration, which is scrambling to rally the oil and gas supply around the world. The clear message from that at this point is that the UAE is not in line with the U.S. On, on, in its efforts, and perhaps because of Yemen, perhaps because of other uh, issues they've had with the Biden administration, but it makes you wonder whether the straining now, because that's what we need to call it, the straining of U.S. Gulf relations will have a wider impact. Exactly right. I mean, I was actually speaking with someone who works in the Saudi foreign ministry uh, this past week who gave me some interesting insight in how Riyadh is looking at the situation in Ukraine. Clearly, in recent years, Saudi Arabia has tried to get assurances from the United States that Iran, whether they acquire a nuclear weapon or not, um, or they just increase their support for the Houthis in Yemen or find more ways to put pressure on Riyadh, they hope the United States has their back. And when this minister was this official was talking with me, he seemed to say, well, uh, Ukraine uh, was invaded by Russia despite months of um, saber rattling. And so the United States failed in its ability to deter against adversaries. And that's a very concerning um, example, they think, of what may happen for Saudi Arabia. Can U.S. commitments stand up to what any form of sort of further aggression that Iran does in the future? And, and I, I think we should underscore, too, that he said, let's remind ourselves what the Biden administration has done. The Biden administration, as opposed to the Trump administration, when their first foreign visit, and I was in Riyadh at the time with him, actually, and some colleagues, Trump's first official visit was to Riyadh. The Biden administration didn't call uh, MBS or the Saudi um, ruling elite, from my understanding, for months after they took office. They've really given them the cold shoulder. And so in the midst of all of this, you have this crisis that has made the Saudis wonder, okay, how firm could these security guarantees be uh, when we look at a place like Ukraine, where Russia ultimately was able to kick off an offensive despite all of the challenges they're facing right now? I mean, especially as, as we shouldn't forget, we were days away from a GCPOA, according to the, the leaks at the time. So I'm sure that, that did not make them any, any more open to, to U.S. advances. Uh, you know what? I think we should check on, you know, where in the world is Wilson Fash. Uh, perhaps we should, we should try him and see where, where, where he's seeing, because I know yeah. he's there at the moment. Hey man, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? Good. So, where where are you at the moment? I I've heard that you know you've been in Gaza. I've seen that you were covering from there. Where are you at the moment? Yeah, I was in uh, Gaza in the Gaza Strip uh, last month, and now I'm in uh, in Iraq. I, I just came back from a week long trip uh, in Mosul. Ah, you spent the whole week in Mosul. Yeah, I uh, it's uh, been wanting to go back for a long time. Last time I was there was at the end of 2018, but then I was there a lot in 16 and 17 during the battle. Exactly. Uh, no, I haven't been there myself since 20, uh, 2020. I mean, with COVID, it's been harder and harder to get there. So how, how was it? How, how did you find the city? How has it changed? It's changed a lot, I have to say. Um, one of the things I've been following up uh, there was the you know rehabilitation, reconstruction work that has been going on in the in the old city, because you know that's where the ISIS made its last stand during the, the battle. So in June, July, uh, 2017, and something like 80% of the old city of Mosul 
uh, was destroyed. I mean, and up to this day, you, you walk around there and it's sheer savagery of destruction. But then there is, I guess, a little light at the end of the tunnel with some rehabilitation going on, uh, some of which is led by the, the UNESCO for about 120 houses, I think, and some churches, and then, of course, the Anori Mosque, okay. which I was able to visit. But people uh, have week. not come back yet, right? It's still a, it's still in a no man's land. In the old city, you have some families who came back. I visited a family uh, whose house has been rehabilitated by the UNESCO and it had just moved in, uh, like I think a week before I, I met them. Uh, and then also you have people who rebuild their own houses, right? With their own means. And they also moved back because, well, obviously it's not ideal because it's destroyed. Everything is destroyed around them, but also a lot of people don't have uh, any alternative. They don't want to stay in camps and they, they cannot afford to pay rent somewhere else in the city. So they come back to a neighborhood, which is, you know, just rubble. Okay. You know, like, I mean, this whole thing started in 2014 when, when the Iraqi government sort of pulled out. Would you now say that they've come back? Can you actually say the Iraqi government has come back to Mosul properly? Well, you know what's interesting? You, you, most of the Muslims I've met, and almost all of them would say, you know, it's so safe now, and the situation is so different than it was what it was before ISIS came. Because you need to remember that before ISIS came and took over Mosul in June 2014, um, a lot of the people there, the, the residents of Mosul, hated the central government, and especially the security forces that were deployed there in, in Mosul, and they saw it as like Maliki's army, they would call it, you know, as... Um, uh, because of Nouriel Maliki, who was prime minister at the time before he was replaced uh, by Haider al-Abadi. And so they hated these security forces, which were, you know, harassing them, you know, and uh, calling them all sorts of names. And uh, it was really, really tough with checkpoints that were basically jailing them in their own city. People would be stuck for hours at this checkpoint, uh, unable to move around in their own city. It was a nightmare to them. And now that's uh, changed a lot. I think the... You know, authorities have learned from their mistakes somehow, and they realize that they cannot repeat what they've done prior to the, the uh, invasion of uh, ISIS, right? And, and a lot of people I've met are pretty satisfied. Obviously, they have, you know, there is a big problem with the presence of uh, militias and corruption. Um, but one thing that is going well, according to them, is security. They say it's, the, it's as secure as it was uh, before 2003. And... Yeah, you know, it's, it's it's getting better, but it's also, of course, it's always going to get better when, you know, the city has, has uh, been through the, the, the worst urban warfare since. Absolutely, the, I remember, because I War. think just before ISIS took over, Maliki central government decided to pick up the weapons from everybody in the city and their effort to calm down opposition. And in reality, all they did is allow ISIS to come unopposed because once the armed forces pulled out, there was nobody who was able to stand up for him, including locals, because they've already handed their guns back to the government. And this was like handing the city back to the attack to the attackers just on a silver plate. But it's it's good to hear that this is, you know, starting to get a bit more secure because that will hopefully link up, you know. Iraq back to normal. Are you still in Mosul or have you left now? No, I've left a couple of days ago and right now I'm in uh, Erbil. Okay. I mean, that's speaking of security. How, how's the situation there? I mean, the attack last week must have been, you know, must have shook the city. 
yeah, the, the attack actually happened uh, the day after I went to, to Mosul. So I wasn't uh, in Erbil at the time. But yeah, yeah. Terrible I knew attack. it wasn't targeted uh, at you. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're still, we're still not sure what it was targeted at. The Iranians claim it was targeting a Mossad forward base in the heart of Iraqi Kurdistan. Of course, the the um, KRG has not really like revealed the target for you know securities in, in, in the same sense. But how, how's the situation been since? Well, I think we have to, to remind that this attack was quite unique, or not unique, but unusual in the sense that there have been a lot of attacks against the US and the US-led coalition uh, in the past few years, uh, mostly by militias backed by Iran. But this attack was different because it was, it was carried directly by Iran from Iran. So we had about a dozen ballistic missiles sent from Iran to the Kurdish region here uh, and just uh, outside of the new US consulate compound. Um, so the, I think the last, if I'm not mistaken, the last time Iran directly carried an attack like that, it was just after the U.S. has um, targeted the General Qasem Soleimani, so in January 2020. So this attack is different from the others, right, carried by, by militias. And as, as you said, said they, they said they were um, targeting Israeli facilities, Mossad facilities, as a retaliation to Israeli airstrikes on the um, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, corps um, just a, few, a couple of days before that. Uh, but obviously, we've seen no evidence of that, of an actual Israeli Mossad facility. So no evidence whatsoever. That being said, it wouldn't be entirely surprising because we know that Israel and the Kurdish factions here in the north have nurtured relations and official ties for decades, actually. Uh, it's something I've been working on in the past, which is quite fascinating. Um, these ties go back all the way to the 60s, when, you know, there was the uprising here, led by um, Mustafa Barzani and the Kurdish factions against the central government. And that's when um, the, the ties uh, emerged with, between them and Israel, because Israel obviously was trying to uh, weaken the, the Baghdad government. And so that was back in the 60s. And ever since, we have seen this very discreet, unofficial, but definitely existing relations between the, between the Kurds here in Iraq and Israel. So again, no evidence whatsoever that Iran actually targeted an Israeli facility here in the north. But it's not but hard to believe that this was what it was. It's not hard to believe either. I mean, yeah. What I would find hard to believe, or actually worrying to believe, is that they would have actually managed to target one house in the middle of the whole city. That would be even more worrying about Iran, Iran's capabilities at a time where they're actually negotiating the decrease of Iran's activities in, in, in the Middle East. And this is back to Iranian chess you know, chess playing with, with the West. This is, you know, with one hand, you're you're negotiating, you're talking about a deal that's about, you know, almost ready, almost cooked. Uh, you, you, you have a release of hostages to the UK, transfer of money that was held up. And then the other side of it is you're sending ballistic missiles across international borders, hitting a city that is perhaps as a warning that any attack by Israel on on. Iran will actually be met by retaliation not only on Israel but perhaps in other arenas. 
Right. But I mean, exactly. this this is also making making um, taking advantage of of Iraq's situation at the moment. I mean, there's still no government. This is the the cherry on the cake is that Iran still has managed to block a a formation of a government, just like it has done in Lebanon previously. We've seen that for years, and now we're seeing it back in Iraq, where they've been incapable of forming a government. Outsiders won the elections, or at least got in the the majority. Uh, not absolute, but at least a majority, and yet they have failed to form a government. What's the what's the latest on that? What have you heard? Yeah, yeah so, so it's been more than five months now since the election that were held on uh, October 10, and since then, since then, you know, intense negotiations and nothing, dreadlock. Uh, as you mentioned, it was uh, Moqtada al-Sadr who won mm-hmm. big during these elections with a majority. And also, we were just talking about Iran, but it's important to, to remind that, uh, to recall that it's the Iran-backed parties that lost this time around. Uh, so that was very interesting uh, to notice. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned, uh, dreadlock ever since. And, uh, and my, maybe a, another dreadlock now on the presidential elections. You know, these were, the, the, the vote was supposed to happen um, this Saturday, 26th, um, but it will probably be delayed uh, because, as you know, the, the president in Iraq is, uh, is Kurdish always, just like the prime minister is always Shia. Yes, it's the latest um, amendment. Exactly. Uh, but there, too, we've seen rivalries between the main uh, Kurdish factions. So they couldn't agree on the name. And so most likely the, the vote set for this Saturday will be delayed. So no prime minister, no president so far. I don't know if there's a... A, a link here or a motif but like wherever you go somewhere they end up without a government i mean you were in lebanon for a while and then while you were living there they had no president no government and now you're in iraq and they have no president no government i mean how long are you going to keep doing this for the middle east i don't know because <laughs> again there's, there, there will be elections in lebanon in in may and again regardless of the solution you know we're, we're, we're kind of moving subjects here, but still on this topic of Iran, there might not be government formation despite an election. There might not be a, a resolution to the election while the GCPOA is being, you know, decided in Vienna. So um, it's very interesting that the, the this vacuum continues. I don't know how it works in Iraq. The Lebanese are a bit more used to it. I don't know how it impacts businesses trying to operate in Iraq to not have a government. I don't know whether you've heard any complaints from people trying to operate there about the constraints of government. Mm, to or- be honest, that's not. A, I haven't had the chance to to really work on the the elections uh, this time around, but it's something that that will uh, definitely be uh, following up because I was just trying. I was uh, in touch with the. Aider Al-Abadi uh, cabinet, uh, also just last week, for a comple- completely unrelated uh, topic. And um, you, you might have seen it because I was working on the, the war against ISIS and uh, Abadi is just releasing a book now. Oh God, uh, I don't want to... Uh, <laughs> is it the book where he says only eight people were injured in the liberation of Mosul? So I don't know if uh, he makes that claim again in his book. That's indeed the claim he, he made uh, back then when he declared uh, the victory over the... It's interesting you mentioned that the the book is named Impossible Victory, and literally it was an impossible victory if you claim that you only made six civilian casualties during the Battle of Mosul. But anyway, I thought the the timing of the release of the book was 
interesting now that you have these uh absolutely no, I, mean, you know? I have a i have a i don't think it's a coincidence spot. i have a soft spot for abadi because i think when he handled the premiership it was a very very tough position to do for anybody that was the impossible bit what i call it a victory i think let's see what happens with iraq in the next few months and i think i'm glad that you're you're working on it now because that will bring out some answer whether it was really a victory because you know you can never measure uh victories in in a matter of months it will take some time to see whether a body did a good job or not but if he claims that Absolutely. he has it'll be uh, interesting to see how he has because like you mentioned earlier in our conversation there's still a lot of questions about the fall of Mosul it's important that you're going back there I think it's it's good that the old city is being rebuilt because that is the core of the city but then there's still a lot of questions about can we reconnect the city to a global economy which you know Iraq's second biggest city has been disconnected and and still not really connected so I'm also glad you're going back there in a, in a while uh and until then i I, th i really hope you stay safe while, while you're in there these, these next few months are gonna be getting ho like hotter and hotter as the summer comes along <laughs> i will make sure to stay safe thank you all right so yeah i guess wilson was uh, in iraq after all well if i sort of zoom out I, that term uh, impossible victory of our body's book it sort of reminds me of what putin's trying to do in ukraine yeah <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean i feel like like for instance my, my, my Saudi contact was saying that he thought that uh, Ukraine would be split in half and Eastern Ukraine would be into Russia's hands and, and we have to think more seriously about Russia as an alternative to the United States in terms of being able to back up their security guarantees and, I mean I which is the Syrian scenario this is what we were saying earlier about the deja vu in Syria I mean I, I guess right. that's what your Saudi contact was alluding right. to Right. But for me, I mean, I, I view it differently. I mean, Syria, uh, the, the Russian presence there was a pinprick, a painful one, of course, with the um, onslaughts from the air, they were able to inflict upon defenseless um, Syrians. Um, but if we're talking about potentially 10,000 Russian casualties that have been incurred through this war within only a month, Um, and it just seems like there's, there's no end in sight. I mean, I think this is a qualitatively different Uh, type of conflict that exposes, I think, Russia's inability to project power when met with serious concerted opposition that's well, well armed and also has the diplomatic support that tragically um, too many Syrians didn't have throughout that conflict. So I think there are instructive lessons to be learned from the Syrian conflict and can help us think through Russia's behavior. But I think that there are different struggles. Right. I think, yeah, I think it would be interesting to see the the geopolitical hedgers of the Middle East continue responding to the conflict in Ukraine, especially in light of exactly that. Exactly right. I mean, I wanted to touch on that too, Gotti, in that I think what I'm finding most interesting is that uh, you can predict who is supporting Russia's invasion of Ukraine, whether it's Iran or it's Syria or Hezbollah making public statements in support of Russia and saying this is the fault of the United States for expanding NATO, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Things I certainly don't subscribe to. Yeah. But then you have people who, uh, the Saudi Arabias of the world, the UAEs of the world, who one would say are partners or allies of the United States, but have very much made very clear with their behavior that they're willing to hedge. They're not, they, they'll, 
take Russian arms. They, in the case of Saudi, they're not willing to boost their oil, oil production to make up for U.S. ban on Russian oil imports. Uh, they want to keep the status quo as is. And so there's a lack of cooperation, it seems, with some of these countries that the United States has gone through years of thinking more favorably than not or critique them for human rights violations when they come up. Um, but I think that's something that I really want to look more into research is how are these uh, geopolitical hedgers dealing with such a crisis? I'm really looking forward to see the research that, that you'll be coming up with. And I think this is a good point to leave it uh, at that for now because I think we've covered a lot of uh, ground today about what the current issues are. And I think um, more developments from from any of these arenas will impact the others. So it'll be interesting to continue monitoring that, that development and hopefully catch up on that in another one of our podcasts. Exactly right. Looking forward to our next one. All right. So thanks for today. And thank you for everybody who listened. Our buyers are on the website, www.governancehouse.me. And feel free to contact us using the form. This was Backgammon.